Hey everyone, this is Mark coming to you from my favorite city, Chicago. Welcome to Meteorite. In this episode, we have a review of Man of Steel. In Slip Discs, we'll be looking back at director of Man of Steel, Zack Snyder's previous film, Sucker Punch. We'll take a listen to the latest releases from Black Sabbath and Jimmy World, and also look at Chicago's summer music festivals. Let's get this riot started. heard a little bit from the latest take on the Superman story, Man of Steel. Okay, heads up, spoilers ahead. Before we move forward with the review of Man of Steel, we have to look backwards, and that's what the makers of Man of Steel did too. The Superman mythos has become so ingrained in the American folklore that he's probably on par with Washington, Lincoln, Patton, Harriet Tubman, hell, even Al Capone where just the name alone immediately draws images into your mind and you know their stories. Now even though Superman is 100% made up, it's not a bad thing that he's part of this list of iconic people. What is the Superman motto? Truth, justice, and the American way. Now yes, the American way part is very nebulous, but it more than likely was just another way to say freedom to choose what you want in life. See, American way just rolls off the tongue easier. Like they even say in the movie, Kal-El, you'll be someone people look up to and aspire to. Now, I don't want to get into a textbook discussion about the Tao of Superman. I just want to point out that pretty much everyone knows of Superman and his good ways. And director Richard Donner perfectly encapsulated this in his two Superman films from 1978 and 80. Richard Lester just reshot and messed with what Donner had already finished in Superman 2. Now, I will put Superman 1 and 2 in the top 20 of greatest all-time films. The images, the characters, are stuck in our mutual brain, like Marlon Brando as the Godfather or Orson Welles as Charles Foster Kane. Richard Donner made the perfect Superman movie. It's epic, it's human, and it's exciting. You, now, you can't remake The Godfather, but you can make your own gangster movie. I like to put it as this. The Godfather is to Superman as Goodfellas is to Man of Steel. Okay, I'll make this work. So, you can't remake perfect, but you can do your own take on it. In 2006, Brian Singer, the director of X-Men, directed his own version of Superman, titled Superman Returns. Now, Superman Returns was so reverent to Donner's films that it was an unofficial sequel to Donner's films. Superman Returns was very well made, but in the end, the story didn't click. Brian Singer is an immensely talented director, but he made a misstep with Superman Returns. In all honesty, I couldn't tell you what they could have done to make it better. 
It was just a weird story. Superman has a son? Maybe. Lex Luthor is trying to make a new continent? What? Let's just let some time pass and try again later. So here we are at Batman, the Dark Knight series. Wait, why there, you ask? After the enormous success of the first two Christopher Nolan-directed Batman films, Nolan was asked to come on board and help restart the Superman films. He wasn't going to direct, he's just there to pull together a good story and see it to, see it to fruition. That's where director Zack Snyder came on board. Already a veteran of two comic book-based movies, 300 and The Watchmen, Snyder was a brilliant choice that wasn't Christopher Nolan. How good of a choice? Man of Steel gets three and a half out of four stars. I loved it. This is Superman film the audience has been waiting for since the end of Superman 2 in 1980. What I really like about this film is that the makers realize the audience is not film illiterate. Everyone has seen Superman 1 and 2 and they know the mythos, so why dwell on what everyone knows? Get to what everyone wants. Even if you didn't know that Christopher Nolan was the developer of this project, his fingerprints are all over it. If you ask people which Batman film was their favorite, 9 times out of 10, they say The Dark Knight. So that's what The Man of Steel is. They just jumped right into the Dark Knight part of the Superman story. There is a little bit of Superman Begins in Man of Steel. It shows Superman as a child and learning how to use his powers, and these are, these are not just perfunctory scenes. Everything that happens ties into something that happens later. Now, even though Man of Steel is being touted as a reboot, it's also a remake of the Donner films. Man of Steel crams all of the highlights of Superman 1 and 2 into Man of Steel, minus Lex Luthor and Jimmy Olsen. But Lex core signs are everywhere. A hint at the sequel, possibly? Hmm? Huh? Kal-El, Superman's Kryptonian name, is sent from the dying Krypton to Earth, where he is raised in Kansas by the wholesome Kents and given the name of Clark. And he learns life lessons so that one day he is ready for when his true calling rears its head. At the same time of Kal-El's escape from the dying Krypton, General Zod and his squadron are arrested for insurrection and sent to the Phantom Zone. Then Krypton goes boom. Once escaped from the Phantom Zone, Zod and his troops track down Kal-El, who literally, in his bones and blood, holds the key to resurrecting the Kryptonian race. And that kind of sums up the entire plot. The Man of Steel should really be called the Man of Fucking Shit Up. The entire movie is almost wall-to-wall action. There are quiet and personal moments, but shit comes fast and furious at Superman, which they should be, because remember, he's faster than a speeding C, ingrained in the American psyche. Why explain we can just let it happen? Zack Snyder is a premier action director. I was amazed and laughed with joy at the epic things Superman has put through. I don't think one set was not somehow trashed. I'm very curious to see how they're going to top the fight sequences in the sequel. They pretty much fucked everything up in this movie. Now, people have been complaining there is a lack of character development, but really, you know his name. Man of Steel is like a James Bond film. This is one of the many adventures of Superman. But I will admit there were one or two plot points that, kind, that I kind of took pause with and wondered how is this going to work out in further films. But the point of Man of Steel is to catapult you into new Superman storylines. Plus, the casting is spot on. With Russell Crowe as Jor-El, Kevin Costner as John Kent, Diane Lane as Martha Kent, and Michael Shannon as Zod, General Zod. Everyone in the cast, except for Henry Cavill as Superman, has an Academy Award or a nomination. 
These people know the shit out of adding depth to their characters without any prompting. But oddly enough, I haven't heard people complaining about that it's more or less a remake of Superman 1 and 2. This kind of adds to my theory that remakes aren't all terrible, and that it's not really a remake if the artist involved has something new to say. Remember, Martin Scorsese's Academy Award winning The Departed was a remake. Remakes are good when the director has something new and fresh they want to bring to the story. 33 years has passed between Superman 2 and Man of Steel. Visual effects have improved, and director Zack Snyder uses the new technology to help in giving a new-ish story. My only true gripe, and why I'm giving Man of Steel 3.5 stars, is because at times the action scenes are a little messy. A lot of blurry things hitting blurry things. I think Snyder tired of his fast, slow, fast action bit, but at least I could see a fist hitting something. Also, I saw Man of Steel in a regular screening, not 3D. I'm totally going to go see it again, and maybe this time in 3D, but I don't feel I missed anything not seeing it in 3D. Oh, and another reason it's three and a half stars. So, yeah, these guys more or less remade Donner's films, but they wanted to stand on its own, so they dropped Luther and Olsen, little changes, okay, but... To not use John Williams' iconic theme? I mean, come on. It's called Superman's Theme. on to slip discs. We just took a look at Zack Snyder's new take on the Superman legend, Man of Steel. Now we'll look back at a previous film of his. Snyder has some experience in transitioning comic books to film, and in turn made his name with movies like 300 and The Watchmen. We're going to take a look at his last movie, another comic book inspired, inspired film, Sucker Punch. To simply sum up Sucker Punch, Mashing together two lesser movie genres equals one lousy film. I don't care much for anime. Maybe one or two out there. And, well, women in prison films, yeah. There's a reason they're on late at night and pretty much only men watch them, alone, with the volume turned low. That pretty much describes the whole movie as it switches back and forth between the two genres. And both are dull, silly, and kind of sexist. I just saved you an hour and 45 minutes. In case you want a little more info as to why this movie sucks, Emily Browning's character, Baby Doll, in blonde pigtails and China doll makeup that never seems to get dirty in both realities of the movie, is committed to an insane asylum by her sexually abusive stepfather after she accidentally shoots her younger sister trying to protect her from his sexual advances. While in the asylum, the sexually abusive orderly, Blue Jones, takes a bribe to get Baby Doll lobotomized so she will never tell what really happened with her sister or be able to reclaim her mother's fortune. Baby Doll makes a plan to escape but needs to gather a few things. 
This is where the movie flip-flops a little too much between fantasy and reality. It took me a while to figure out that the asylum doesn't actually run a burlesque show on the side. <laughs> Director Zack Snyder has made everything so overly animated from the first frame, I wasn't sure what was a dream and what was reality. But once you catch on, it's easier to follow. While the girls are in training for the big dance show, they gather their supplies, and these scenes are played out like anime video game fantasies. The girls fight robots, dragons, giant samurais, and World War I-style battles. Snyder directed 300 and Watchmen, so he knows how to direct a flashy fight sequence, where you feel the thrill of the combatants. In Sucker Punch, you feel like you're watching promos from a video game you want to play, but never will. Snyder has stated one interpretation of the film is that it's a critique on geek culture sexism and its objectification of women. So why does he give them exactly what they want without showing them what's wrong with it? These limp arguments against exploitation of women in film carry as much weight as an anger management therapist punching you with your own fist while repeatedly saying, stop hitting yourself, and then when you're bruised and broken, telling you that was a lesson against violence. To keep the ick factor constantly up, the girls are given cutie pie names, Sweet Pea, Blondie, and Baby Doll, and dress like extras from Cabaret all the time. And all of them seem to be put in the asylum against their will. Isn't everyone in a movie prison innocent? And Carla Giannio rules over it as a subtle lesbian, strict director of the asylum. I have to dis stop describing this movie. I'm starting to feel ashamed and filthy. This movie was written by Snyder, directed by Snyder, and produced by Snyder. This whole pervy mess is his fault. It's also very creepy that when given full reins and a lot of money, once again, all the digital effects look great as they have in his past movies, but this is what comes from his mind? When I originally saw Sucker Punch, I knew that Snyder was a, uh, selected to direct Man of Steel. At the time, it made me nervous to wonder how he'll handle the new Superman movie. Is Lois Lane going to strut around in thigh-high boots and a lace teddy while sucking on a lollipop? If that last line made you feel icky, that's how I felt all through Sucker Punch. Reuniting to record a new album in almost 35 years is Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath. I know! I can't believe it's been that long either. But yeah, for almost 35 years, Ozzy has put out solo albums and Black Sabbath put out albums. Yes, for the casual listener, Black Sabbath continued on without Ozzy, mostly with lead singer Ronnie James Dio. But there were other guys, and they did put out some good material. The reason it feels like Ozzy and Sabbath have been playing together for years is because they've been playing reunion tours for like 20 years now and did release two new singles, but this is their first full-blown new album since the last one they recorded together, Never Say Die, released in 1979. Let's take a listen to a track from their new album titled 13.
And we're back. I wish I had the time to go into Ozzy and Black Sabbath's convoluted past, but there isn't enough showtime for that. The short version is Ozzy Osbourne, Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, and Bill Ward in 1968 came together and created a band which would become Black Sabbath. It was a groundbreaking band in that they created a signature sound. Lead singer Iommi in an industrial accident at the age of 17 on his last day of work in a sheet metal factory lost the tips of his middle and ring fingers on his right hand. He compensated with rubber tips for his fingers and down-tuned his guitar, giving the band its signature sound. Their dark sound and dark theme lyrics made them an iconic band, but in 1979, Ozzy was kicked out of the band due to drug use, which is ironic compared to his bandmates' drug use. Ozzy went on to make memorable solo albums, and Black Sabbath, with singer Ronnie James Dio and his awesome mullet, put out a couple of good albums, but Ozzy overshadowed them. Ozzy's solo output and Black Sabbath output, with and without Ozzy, are so intertwined that the casual listener pretty much couldn't tell when a song originated. Like, did you know that Black Sabbath put out 10 albums between the time Ozzy left and this new album, 13? I think a lot of the intertwining of the discographies happened in the 90s when Ozzy reunited with Black Sabbath, but both artists separately released albums, but like in the 80s, Ozzy's solo albums still more or less overshadowed Black Sabbath's albums. Also, Ozzy's turn as a reality TV celebrity cemented his iconic image. So, yeah, album 13 is Black Sabbath's new album in 12 years, and its first with Ozzy in 34 years. And you know what? It's pretty rockin'. Within seconds of putting on the first track, I was headbanging. The album deals in the traditional metal subjects, no God, blood, loneliness, death, fire, brimstone, yada, yada, yada. I mean, what do you expect from the Prince of Darkness? The album rocks as a whole. As singles, mm, I did notice on repeat listens that the songs all kind of sort of sounded alike. High quality, mind you, but just one long metal song. And also, this isn't a full reunion. Drummer Bill Ward is not back on this album. There's a supposed money issue, but Ozzy says Bill isn't up to it. And when Ozzy says you're not good good enough condition to be in a metal band with him, ew. so Brad Wilk of Rage Against the Machine sits in, and he's perfectly fine. I don't think there would have been a big difference if Ward was there. And Ozzy's voice is oddly strong for a man with such a long history of drinking and smoking. Oh, and the title, 13, actually has no spooky reasoning behind it. The label wanted 13 songs, but the band only wanted to do 10 songs, so they named the album 13 as a fuck you to the label. But in the end, the band, with bonus tracks, recorded 16 songs. But the number I'm giving this album is a 3, as in 3 stars. It's cool that almost all the guys in Black Sabbath were able to set aside years of differences to record again. It may not be as groundbreaking when they were young, but trust me, you throw this album on, you'll feel the urge to headbang and throw up some horns. No way, that's Ozzy's son. Yeah, Ozzy's older than that. Yeah, Ozzy's an old fart. 
Jimmy Eat World has a new album out titled Damage. And in bigger news, did you know that Jimmy Eat World has put out three albums between this present album, Damage, and their million-plus selling album, Bleed American, from 2001? You know, the one with the song, The Middle. You know, the one that was played every friggin' where, from MTV to MTV-like teen shows. You know, that one. Oh, oh come on. Don't, ma- don't make me sing it. Come on. It, really? Fine. It just takes some time, little girl. You're in the middle of the ride. Everything will be just... Oh, okay, hold on, hold on. Let me take a drink of water here. Clear my throat. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> okay. It just takes some time, You know, that one. Okay, let's take a listen to a track from Damage. We're back. Jimmy World has been putting out polished, punk-flavored pop gems for about 20 years now. They formed in 1993. Originally seen as part of the emo music movement of the 90s and the early 2000s, Jim Adkins and bandmates make teen-leaning, lovelorn pop rock songs, but they're talented enough to keep them from sounding like whiny teen boys and just nice guys writing heartfelt, yearning love songs. Their songs have an overlapping past-present feel to them. You could be thinking, uh, thinking back on a previous heartbreak or experience it, experiencing it at this exact moment. Kind of a neat trick, if you ask me. Their album Clarity brought them notoriety and positive reviews, but it was their 2001 album, Bleed American, which in the light of 9-11 was changed to self-titled Jimmy World, rocketed them to superstardom. A girl I was dating at the time and I, like most couples I believe at the time, had Bleed American on constant rotation. 
It was a perfect summer album of big choruses to shout along with as you drove with the windows rolled down. Now, mind you, the last three songs were not as strong as the first part of the album, but at that point, you would either switch to another sing-song album or beat your destination. Bleed American put Jimmy Eat World everywhere. They followed this up with Futures. Not a huge hit, but the single Work had one of the most heartfelt music videos about growing up in a small town, the angst that all teens probably feel about graduating, and where their place in life will be. I recommend you look it up. Futures was a gold, not a platinum album, and the next two albums, Chase This Light and Invented, each a little less. But Casino, the single from Chase This Light, kept the band in the light. Now we're up to Damage. It's a nice and sweet and jangly and well-produced, but so is Pudding. Well, if your pudding is jangly, you should probably send it back, but Pudding doesn't sound as angsty as Damage. I listened to the album a couple of times, and each time, nothing really stuck with me. All the pieces are in place for a Jimmy Eat World album, the lovelorn lyrics, the harmonizing, the jangle. But as you listen to it, you kind of forget about it. Nothing in the album sticks. I would talk about one of the released singles, but why? They're all about the same, and I would forget what I'm talking about as soon as I reach the end of the sentence. Most of these songs sound like they should be playing in the background of a teen drama show as a heartbreaking truth is revealed, and then they fade to commercial. Jimmy Eat World used to write hooks big enough to catch the shark from Jaws. You wanted to shout along with their lyrics, but in Damage, the band weakly floats through verses and unmemorable choruses. At times, the songs feel like the longest three and a half minutes of your pop life. Damage is the worst thing a pop rock album can do. It doesn't pop. Two things signify summer in Chicago, the orange traffic barrels and summer music festivals. Chicago has always had neighborhood blackfest. The biggest and most famous for a long time was the Taste of Chicago. Second-tier bands usually played these festivals. Big-name bands rarely played downtown. The city feared a mix of oversized crowds and the ruckus the band might incite, which would damage the parks in the downtown area. I think the specter of the 1968 Democratic National Convention protest and the Disco Demolition Derby at Comiskey hung heavily over the city for many years. But Radiohead's 2001 performance in Grant Park showed that large bands could play downtown in the open fields and there not be any kind of public disturbance. I attended that show and it went off wonderfully, under the night sky of the city. It also helped that it wasn't, say, Slayer or Terror who played. They could really rile up their fans. In the late 90s and early 2000s, traveling music festivals fell out of flavor, mostly due to cost. So destination music festivals came in back into fashion, with Woodstock 94-99 leading the way, showing, if you rock, they will roll. To it. Steadily, Coachella became the 800-pound gorilla of destination music festivals of the new millennia, drawing huge crowds to the middle of the fucking desert 
and bonus, having prominent defunct bands reunite to perform there. In 2005, hoping to reproduce the success of Coachella and other destination music festivals like Bonnaroo and South by Southwest, Chicago partnered up with Perry Farrell and some concert promoters and brought back one of the most successful music festivals of the past 30 years, Lollapalooza. It took off spectacularly, and now Coachella may have its 800-pound gorilla in the desert. Chicago has its 800-pound billy goat by the lake. Now, this new Lollapalooza wasn't going to be as alternative as the original Traveling Fest. It needed to draw a larger crowd. So its first year had Weezer, The Pixies, Arcade Fire, and Death Cab for Cutie. Critically acclaimed bands that rock, but didn't rile the crowd up into a rioting frenzy. I attended in 2006 and one day in 2012. In that time span, the festival had gone from an 800-pound billy goat to a 1,200-pound billy goat by the lake. It took over more of the Grand Park area because more and more tickets were being sold, which is understandable. When you have a festival in the heart of the third largest city in America, there's more to do than just a festival at hand, so people would stay beyond the performance days and make it a week vacation. So with more attendees, is there enough space for all? Both times I went, yes. I never had an issue with sight line, bad audio, or food, drink, or bathroom lines. Like the city it takes place in, Lollapalooza is the festival that works. And the band selection stayed diverse and good, from indie bands on the way up, like the Go Team and TV on the radio, to huge bands like a Reunited Soundgarden, or Pearl Jam, or Kanye West. It was a lot of bands of varying genre. And this year, 2013, sold 100,000 tickets for each day of the concert, a total of 300,000 all gone in record time. And to that I say, why? This year the headliners are so white bread that the festival seems to be sponsored by the Mayonnaise Commission. With bands like Mumford & Sons, The Killers, The Lumineers, Vampire Weekend, The National, and Imagine Dragons, once again, why? Now yes, The Cure and Nine Inch Nails are headliners, but they were revealed almost after a majority of the tickets had been sold. So, was this year's Lollapalooza sold on its reputation, or these middling generic bands? It's like they're slowly booking easy rock stars like Captain and Tennille or Michael Bolton, and I'm serious about that. Vampire Weekend is constantly ripped on by music critics as a Paul Simon knockoff. Now yes, there are more bands than these headliners like Matt and Kim and 2 Chains, but there's Ellie Goulding. And can you name another song of hers besides Lights? Emile Sande? Name another song of hers besides Next to Me. And then there's Frightened Rabbit, which sounds like outtakes from the Garden State soundtrack. Yes, yes, there are quality bands playing at Lollapalooza, but they're not the draw. What was the draw this year? Luckily, Chicago is a large city and has many more festivals, and maybe this is the year, the switch, from Lollapalooza to a different festival being the draw. Quietly and constantly, the Pitchfork Music Festival in Union Park has year after year brought in quality bands and performers, the kind of music that critics and college kids wet and dream about. Sonic Youth performing Daydream Nation in its entirety, or Public Enemy performing It Takes a Millions to Hold Us Back, and Mission of Burma performing Verses. All four-star bands, but not huge draws. But if you are a breakout band at Pitchfork, your odds of playing at Lollapalooza next year quickly escalated to help keep Lollapalooza hip. But I'm not here to talk about these two. I'm here to talk about the little festival that could, Riot Fest. Riot Fest was started in 2005 as an alternative to the large fest, great bands at lower prices. The band skewed more towards punk, metal, indie rock, and ska, and it was seen by many as a better alternative to the Warp Tour, 
which actually is still going strong after 18 years. But to stay relevant, it moved away from straight punk to different styles like screamo, metal, and very, very, very pop punk style bands. Over two days at the Congress Theater, bands like the Bouncing Souls, the Effigies, the Misfits, the Germs, Dead Kennedys, and the Lawrence Arms christened the first show. Year after year, slowly expanding from the Congress Theater to include other local venues in the Chicago area, the Riot Fest was able to, large, was able to book uh, larger name bands, and got bands to reunite too, like Naked Raygun, Bopal Stiffs, Dead Milkmen, Danzig Legacy, and The Descendants, who played Riot Fest before Coachella. Score. And Riot's Fest headliners went from Naked Raygun to Bad Brains to the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Bad Religion to Rise Against to this year having Fall Out Boy and Blink-182. Also, last year in 2012, Riot Fest finally got too big for its venues and became its own outdoor park-based festival. In its second year as a park-based festival, Riot Fest now has one night at the Congress Theater and for Saturday and Sunday all day, they use Humboldt Park on Chicago's west side. And their outdoor venue includes a full-blown fair with Ferris wheels, giant slides, and carny games. I attended a couple of Riot Fest earlier shows. They were great, kind of felt like any other show at any, at any of the venues in Chicago, but it was still great to see bands that I loved. When they moved to Humboldt Park, I had just a touch of hesitation about the move. Not very punk rock DIY to have such a huge festival. But you know what? Once there, it felt like a natural extension. Every band played like they were playing a club show, no half-assing by anyone. And by this point, Riot Fest was booking big-name headliners like Iggy and the Stooges and Rise Against. But the difference in the crowd from other festivals was palpable. Since the majority of the bands at Riot Fest get almost no mainstream support, you have people who love music. Whereas Lollapalooza, you have a majority of people there who want to attend an event. A lot of woo girls and bros at Lollapalooza. And there's some scientific proof backing this up. Recently, a poll by MSN of 2,000 people who attend music festivals in general show that only 45% of the people who go attend only for the music. The other 55%? Sex and drugs. Who cares who's playing? Let's bump a line and get our fuck on. But in Lollapalooza's defense, when you have 300,000 people attending, you do want uh, an easy crowd to control, and the Lumineers will sedate them for you. Now, Riot Fest has found its niche as a nice midway between Lollapalooza and its yuppies and Pitchfork and its hipsters, and the format has become so popular that it has expanded the Riot Fest name to New York, Dallas, Philadelphia, Toronto, and Denver. And this year might be the year Riot Fest earns its respect as a major player in the Destination Festival circuit and not be considered the other Warp Tour. Announced recently, the surprise reunion band playing at Riot Fest this year is The Replacements. Now, yes, it's not the full original lineup, some of those dudes are dead, but Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson are performing for the first time since their breakup in 1991. Now, their breakup is of rock legend. One by one, during their, unbeknownst by everyone, including the band, final set, the band walked away and the roadies took over. Pretty much intermember band fighting drove them apart. Now, where was this final show? The Taste of Chicago, Grant Park. Riot Fest scored a major coup. I'm not sure what they did to get them, but Riot Fest just outshined Lollapalooza. And the hipsters at Pitchfork, who outwardly may just smoke their cigarettes in indifference, you know deep down they care. How awesome would it have been for Lollapalooza to have the replacements make their triumphant return to the stage 20 plus years later in the same place they ended? Riot Fest is now the 400 pound gorilla, 400 pound billy goat 
in Chicago. After my great experience last year at RideFest, I knew I was returning this year. I was just excited that Rocket from the Crypt was reuniting. Now another favorite is reuniting too. I have my ticket, and you guys will get a full review. Hope to see you there. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to Media Riot. Media Riot is sponsored by John Jimmy's Sausages. His 12-inch will blow your fucking mind. That's your Riot news from Chicago, where the traffic sucks, the winds are strong, and the deep dish pizza is above average. Media Riot is an Illinois production, and we'll see you all next time. Bye now.